Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Tonight we talk about The Office. How many fans of The Office do we have here? Okay, fans, good. Uh, how many of you actually go to an office uh, each week to work? Yeah, okay, sizable portion. Tonight we are going to talk about work, about the jobs that God's given us to do, and how you actually find fulfillment in your work. Uh, the Office is actually a great springboard to talk about our careers, because for many of us, our 9 to 5 jobs are actually vastly underwhelming. <laughs> That's really the central conceit behind the Office TV series, whether it's American or British series. It's a bunch of middle-class office workers who have these boring, lifeless jobs at a mid-level paper supply company called Dunder Mifflin. And it's located in Scranton, PA. And most of the work is pretty mindless, so much so that they, they you know, have to resort to these pranks and schemes and to kind of keep their sanity. You just saw Jim Halpert, 20-something guy, you know, likes to torment his deskmate Dwight Schrute by sending him faxes from the future on a stationery. Uh, work is so boring for Jim that he also he actually steals his coworkers' desks items and puts them into jello molds. Um, one time he stole Dwight's stapler, tape dispenser, paper clips, and put them all in the snack vending machine in the break room, right? All this because his job is so unfulfilling, so mind-boggling numbing that he has to resort to that to keep his everyday work from just sucking the life out of him. And if statistics are to be believed, many of you in this room and listening online, identify with them. Check this out. In your lifetime, the average adult will actually spend about 150,000 hours at work. That's 40% of your life. And the odds are that you're actually not going to enjoy it. A recent survey across America discovered that a full two-thirds of American workers said, I actually don't like my job. In fact, a lot of people wrote in and said, I actually hate it. And maybe you identify with that. Maybe you get up in the morning and, and you barely drag yourself out of bed. You're like, oh, don't remind me. This is Sunday. You dread the drive to work and, and feel like you're trapped and, and, and you like live for the weekend. Like, is there anything more than life than nine to five? I'm going to ask a funny question being in New Jersey, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Any country Western fans uh, with us who can admit that? Yeah, okay. A few, few of you, all right. Uh, I'm not much for country Western, but Toby Keith has a song that I think just kind of captures the spirit. Uh, he writes, yeah, the big boss man, he likes to crack that whip. I ain't nothing but a number on his time card slip. I give him 40 hours and a piece of my soul, and he puts me at the bottom of his totem pole. I don't even think he knows my name. My baby cuts hair at the beauty boutique, just blowing and going till she's dead on her feet. They walk right in and they sit right down, and she gives them what they want, and then she spins them around. I don't even think they know her name. All week long, I'm a real nobody, but I just punched out, and it's Paycheck Friday. The weekend's here, good God almighty. I'm going to get drunk and be somebody. <laughs> you know, a lot of people feel like nobody's at work. That what they do makes not a lick of difference in the world. Yet, yet work dominates our lives. I mean, it defines our lives. It often determines where we live, who we're going to have as friends, how we spend the bulk of our time. So, so with the office as our background, I want to take a crack at the question, why work? Th does God really care about my job? Now, that's actually not exactly a new question. It was asked over 3,000 years ago by the wisest man who ever lived. His name was Solomon. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he asked, what do people really get for all their hard work? 
We printed that scripture actually in your, uh, your uh, scripture pamphlet there. We put all the scripture in passages so you can follow along as we, as we go through this. But in other words, Solomon's like, what am I really getting for this? I mean, you spend your life working and laboring and what do you get to show for it? I mean, especially here in America where the government will actually pay you for not working, right? If you can pick up welfare checks, why not just stay in bed and cash them? Why work? And some of you may be like, well, well obviously I work because I, I, I have bills to pay. I mean, do we, we all like learn that truth as kids, right? Like we, we, there's a rhyme for it, right? I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go, right? Last month we had tax day. I hope you got yours in. Did you, did you, how many of you paid your taxes this year? That's good. Like half, half people in church pay the taxes. That's, that's great. Um, yeah, I actually used the short form this year, right? It's a, you see that new, the short form, it, like two lines on it, right? For line one, how much did you make this year? Line two, send it all in. You know, save, saves you a lot of time, not much money, but time. Now, you know, some folks say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not working just to pay bills. I'm working to retire. That's what I'm about. Um, I'm, I wanna, I'm gonna work extra hard now so I can just kind of kick back when I'm in my 40s. But you kind of think about the logic of that. Like you're spending the majority of your prime years doing something you don't wanna do so at the end you don't have to do it again, you know? And it's like, is that really the way you wanna spend your prime cut? There's gotta be a better reason than you're just here to pay bills or wanna retire. And in fact, there is. Uh, the Bible actually has a lot to say about work, about God's concern for how we invest ourselves in our jobs or our careers. And the fact of the matter is this. God wants you to enjoy your job, even though most people don't. God wants your work to actually be fulfilling. Later in Ecclesiastes 5.18, Solomon arrives upon this insight. He says, Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor. Circle that word satisfaction there in your notes. The Bible says it's actually good and it's proper to enjoy your job. I mean, satisfaction. Ecclesiastes 5.19 goes on to say it's actually a divine gift. It's a gift from God. When God enables any man, Solomon writes, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, that's a gift from God. Now, there's a big difference between success and fulfillment. How, how many of you know people who are successful at their work, but they aren't exactly fulfilled by it? Right? Yeah, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's you. T tonight we're going to look at what God has to say about actually finding fulfillment in your work. Because the Bible talks a lot about how we invest ourselves. And it's really easy to cut spiritual faith out of our nine to five lives. A lot of us set up this kind of false dichotomy. Like, well, there's the spiritual side of my life. Which I primarily exercise like, well, here, I'm at church. I'm doing the spiritual thing or in my small group. And then there's the work side of my life. You know, what I do in the real world, nine to five. And faith doesn't really factor into that. Well, the Bible suggests otherwise. In fact, there are really three key ingredients that God highlights in his word that are vital to grasp if you're going to find fulfillment in your work. And this goes across the board. Whether you're just graduating, maybe I mean, we have many students here who are like they're just graduating college or, or a master's program and they're like looking at their first job or changing their careers. Or you're a corporate executive, you're like a veteran of the workforce or whatever it is you spend your days doing. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, probably the hardest workers in the entire room. One more hand for moms, okay? Mom, the hardest. Now... But regardless of what you do, there are really three things you've got to grasp if you're going to find fulfilling work in this life. And really the first is you've got to know why you work. As I said, we spend about 40% of our lives, 150,000 hours in a lifetime at work. And most of us have no idea why. <laughs> I mean, why are we doing this? I, okay, the basics are there, right? I've got to get paid. I, I don't want to be poor. I've got to eat, you know? But, there, but is there more to it than that? Yes. And the most basic foundation of finding fulfillment is understanding that first and foremost, work is God's idea. Work is not from the devil. <laughs> it's actually God's plan from the very beginning. 
If you turned in your Bibles all the way back to Genesis, first book of the Bible, first chapter, chapter one, it says God created man in his own image, male and female, and God said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. So that's the first command, right, God ever gives to a human beings, right? Subdue it, subdue the earth and rule over it. So that's the second command God gives to human beings. So now that, that first command, just look at the first one, multiply, fill the earth. We like that because basically it's a command to have sex. And, and most of you are, are like, now that is a great job, right? It's actually the only biblical command that the majority of humankind seems to be able to keep. We've done a pretty good job from, you know, from, from Genesis 1. It's like Adam and Eve in the beginning. Now there's six billion people. And God's like, hey, good job on the sex part. You've been fruitful and increased in number. But the second part is the one that we struggle with. He says, I want you to subdue and rule over this earth. And what that means is I want you to take care of my planet. I'm giving you planet Earth, and you're to be caretakers. You're actually to be stewards and managers of everything you see. I'm giving you a job, Adam. And God actually goes on to invite Adam to share in his original creative work of actually giving names to the animals and the birds and the bees. And then in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So in other words, contrary to popular opinion, the oldest profession in the world is landscaping. <laughs> God says, I created you in my image and I created you to work. You work because God is a worker. God works. He's a creator. And because you're in his image, you have creativity inside of you. All, all of that creativity and industry comes from God. And in fact, it could be argued you are most like God when you are being creative and working. Jesus actually said in John 5, 17 to his disciples, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I, too, am working. God works. Jesus works. We work. It's all God's idea. It's important to recognize something here because you're like, then, then, then why does sometimes work really suck? <laughs> uh, it's, it's sometimes work feels like a curse. Yeah, but, but, but work is, itself is not a curse. It's actually given by God to human beings as a blessing in the Garden of Eden, even before sin entered the world. Before anything was broken or bent, God gave Adam and Eve jobs. And this is important to get your mind around because, because most of us are like, well, wait, when you think of like paradise, there's work in paradise. I mean, for many of us, we think of paradise. What, what do we think? You know, going down the shore, laying on the beach, kind of sunning ourselves, doing zip, nothing. No, that's not paradise in God's mind. There was work in paradise. It wasn't just leisure. There was God given work to do. And we're actually told there will be work for us to do in heaven. And so you're like, so, so where's the curse then? Well, that actually happens a chapter later in Genesis 3 when Satan and sin entered the world. And with sin came this curse, the pain, the drudgery, the disappointment, the difficulty of work. Because of our sin, God said, he said, now by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food and all your toil will produce is thorns and thistles. Now it's going to be frustrating. That's the curse. That's where the pain comes from, from sin, not work. Work was originally given to us by God as a blessing, and then it got warped. Just like sex, like the first command, right? Sex, God's perfect gift, now abused in many different variations and perversions, but originally a blessing. Sex is not bad. Now there's work. So one of the ways we bear his image, and it meant to be deeply fulfilled, is to actually work and create in his image. It's his idea. And there's a foundational goodness in that. Now you've got to understand that if you want to find fulfillment. That's the basics. And the second thing you've got to understand is that God intended work actually to develop our character. And this is about maturity because part of growing up means getting a job. There, I said it. <laughs> I actually mean growing up spiritually, just as well as chronologically. Work is a, uh, is a school for character development. 
God often uses our jobs, our work, and the challenges we encounter as, as a testing ground. A good example of that would be Joseph. His story is actually told at the end of the book of Genesis. And, and Joseph was a guy who grew up with this dream of being this great leader. And he believed it was like a God-given you know, vision. The problem was everything in his life went wrong from early on. <laughs> he was sold into slavery by his siblings. So his first job was actually in a prison. And he's actually in his 40s before any of it begins to make any sense. So if at that point in his life, Joseph went on like a job interview and they were like, could you give us your resume? He'd be like, well, uh, I was betrayed by my brothers. Uh, you know, I, was, I had this thing, like I was sold into slavery. Uh, and then, let's see, I was a uh, house servant, like, well, like a housekeeper for a couple years. And it didn't work out so well. There was a conflict with this lady. I don't want to get into it. But then, um, let's see, I was a slave. And then I was assistant to actually a, uh, a, um, a corrections officer. Um, all right, I was, a pr- I was a prisoner while I was there, and I helped him. Okay, not the greatest, most sparkling resume for being leader of a major country. And it's like, well, what was going on all that time? Joseph had menial jobs and tremendous hardship. It's like, had God forgotten a dream? Not at all. In fact, the Bible records in Psalm 105, until the time came to fulfill his word, the Lord tested Joseph's, let's read the word together, character. In regards to your work, God actually has a dream for your life. But before that dream light comes true, or even if it does come true, God's going to test your character to see if you can handle it. And if you don't pass the test, the dream may not happen. Why? Because God is far more interested in what you're becoming than what you're doing. We're human beings, not human doings. And God's first and foremost interested in our character. And work is a testing ground, a machine shop of sorts, for forging godly character on the inside. Especially if you have a boss like Michael Scott, <laughs> or a coworker you can't stand. Show of hands, let's, you know what, let's have an honest, ready, we're going to have an honest moment together as a church family. Show of hands, how many of you have a boss or a coworker you can't stand? Thank you for your honesty. I'm hoping you didn't bring him to church with you tonight. <laughs> you know, like, hey, mother say, oh, what are you doing here? <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, could you imagine that although you're thinking of bailing because he or she makes work uncomfortable, that he or she might actually be heavenly sandpaper <laughs> on your life? They're rubbing up against you. God actually wants to teach you something from that boss or coworker, even if they are in nits, you know, or are usually wrong. God wants to teach us, and he's far more interested in our character than our comfort. He's a lot more interested in perfecting you than pampering you. And that's a perspective you've got to bring to your everyday work, nine to five, no matter what you do. I mean, think about things. Think about the character qualities that are being forged in you through your nine to five job. I, I mean, I was talking with Colleen about this. I think patience, right? I thought I knew what it was to like, you know, I'm, I'm going to learn to be patient when I got married. And marriage is a school for learning patience. But then you have kids and realize I didn't learn Jack. <laughs> you know, moms, any moms whose primary job is at home with the kids. Yeah, you got a little something to teach us about patience. Come home the other night from work and Colleen's out in the backyard with Chase and Dell, five and three respectively. And I walk in and Dell comes ripping down the hill from the sandbox and he's not covered in sand. He's covered in those wood chips, you know, that smell like manure. You know, that's that, was it mulch? covered in mulch it's in his hair he is covered and he's like daddy and i'm like whoa stiff arm the heisman you know like <laughs> and, and i turn to colleen and, and i'm like wow looks like someone needs a bath tonight and calls she's reading this magazine just sitting there and she's like well it's not your son i've already given him three today <laughs> patience <laughs> what school do you go to learn that <laughs> work forges your character or how about humility what, what was your first job uh, what was your first job? Uh, mine was actually at the Cedar Grove Food Town. I'll never forget it. Worked for Kenny, my first boss in the seafood department. 
I would mop the floor of fish guts, bag groceries, and then on Sundays, the culmination of my week, I got to scrape gum off the floor with a razor blade. My first job. And I can tell you it wasn't my first choice. And sometimes, folks, God uses work to build humility into our character where it's lacking. I know this sounds old school, but I'm honestly amazed by the number of uh, you know, folks who are in 20-something I talk with who get out of college and you, know, you crash at home. And that's, fi- that's awesome, which is fine. If you can work that out with your parents, hey, God bless you, God bless them. Um, but, but who then go to live at home and then like, refuse to take a job. Like, I, I can't, I can't, I just got to wait for it. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. It's very, you know, easy to spiritualize. I hear a lot of like, well, I'm just not sure yet what God's will is for my life. And, um, and I'm not a prophet, but I got a word of like prophecy for you. I can actually tell you what God's will is. It's God's will that you get a job. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Uh, I know I'm trying to, uh, at, the, at the morning service, the parents were like, oh, go pastor Tim, you know. <laughs> But, I, but I'm serious, your first job or your second or your third doesn't mean this is what you're going to be locked into doing for life. <laughs> and often it's those earliest positions where God does his deep character formation in us, teaching us all the intangibles, like humility, like perseverance. The, the only thing I took away from my first job, scraping gum, is that I learned to get up early on Sunday mornings. <laughs> that, that's when Kenny wanted the gum scraped. And at 8 a.m., every Sunday morning I went in there, scraped the thing. And sometimes my dad had to pry me out of bed with a crowbar. <laughs> but I did it. And as I scraped that gum off the floor, I remember thinking, well, one thing's for sure, I'm never going to end up in a career that makes me get up early on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Patience, humility, perseverance. I forget what the Bible calls them something. What are they? The fruits of the... Uh, oh, spirit, yeah. And one of the ways God builds the fruits of the spirits into our lives is through work. Ephesians 4 makes this in- invitation which can kind of stand of a work credo, take on an entirely new way of life, writes Paul. A God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct, let's read this together, as God accurately reproduces his character in you. The most important thing you bring home from your work is not your paycheck. It is your character. It is the core of you. How are you different because of what God enables you to do week to week at your job. You don't even have to be working in the conventional sense. If you're, if you're a student, I mean, some of you are going through finals. You're being tested by your professors, right, on one level. And on another level, God's testing you. Reproducing his character in you as you study and you learn and you communicate and you persevere. So this is critical to keep in mind when you're looking at your work. I, I often say that to people who are like, you know, I, I, what do you think I should do? I have different offers. When you consider getting a job, you shouldn't just look at what does it pay me? But ask, what is it going to do to me? What am I going to become as a result of this job? God says work develops your character. Now, I'd like to turn the discussion to finding a job that fits. Because if you've got those two foundations, that work is God's idea and it's part of his plan to develop your your inner metal, then you're ready to now talk nuts and bolts. Um, And in a group this size, I'm guessing there are many of you here who are hoping there's more than just the job you currently have. Or maybe you don't have. Maybe you're out of work right now. All right? Or, Or maybe you're in a transition. I want to spend a little bit of time on how to find a job that you can actually love and find fulfillment in. Because some of you are in the midst of transition or, or you're thinking about like maybe changing careers. And you know what? That is actually perfectly normal. Check this out. Again, more statistics. Did you know one third of Americans change jobs every year? 33%. It's incredible, isn't it? If you're going into the job market right now, according to experts, you will change careers, not just jobs, but careers at least four times in your life. Show of hands, how many of you are not currently in careers that you studied for while in school? Yeah, 
See what I mean? Me too. <laughs> What's fulfilling to you now may not be tomorrow. So how do you find a job that's a good fit for you and actually brings a, a degree of meaning and satisfaction? I will turn to the office again for a little perspective. You want to start a business. How do you start? What do you need? Well, first of all, you need a building. And secondly, you need supply. You need something to sell. Now, this could be anything. It could be a thingamajig or a, a whoosie whatsy or a whatchamacallit. <laughs> now, you need to sell those in order to have a payday. And if you sell enough of them, you will make a 100 grand. Satisfied? <laughs> you know, for, for many people, you know, understanding their fit in life is kind of a mystery. Like, you know, you go to school and like you get out and you're like, you know, behind door number one is job number one. And if I pick the wrong door, you know, the, the consolation is like boredom or incompetence for the rest of your life. The Bible says that instead of starting actually with the want ads or, you know, looking for vacancies or putting your resume on monster.com, instead of actually sending out your resume all over, what you first need to do is actually take an honest appraisal of yourself, a little personal evaluation, some assessment, an appraisal of your life in a couple of areas. And the first is to evaluate your past work. Your, your personal history um, tells a whole lot about you, what you do, what you've done. In, in Galatians 4, Paul writes this. Throw this up here, would you? Make a careful exploration of, of who you are and the work you have been given. And then sink yourself into that. Circle that phrase, make a careful exploration. The Bible says to carefully explore two things, who you are and the work you've been given. And when you do that, when you look at how you're wired, the kind of things you gravitate towards, you, you actually can ask yourself a couple questions. Well, what have I enjoyed doing? In other words, there are certain common characteristics, no matter what like job you've had, there's a common thread running through all of them. What do I like to do? There are certain things that turn you on, that inspire you, that turn your crank, get you going in the morning. Now, in this, again, in this room, there are lots of abilities and gifts represented here, but there are only a few things that you can not only do well, but you enjoy doing them well. And that basic motivational thrust is a crucial point in deciding what kind of work you ought to invest yourself in. Now, there's lots of examples here. I mean, you can even see this in your childhood, right? I mean, you know, that basic bent um, you, you were born with. Some of you were born organizers, right? You know, you, you popped out of your mama's womb and you looked around and you're like, hey, somebody better clean this place up, <laughs> right? As a kid, your room was spotless. If we like pulled out your sock drawer now, we'd be like, worship you, you know? Detail person. You're an organizer at heart and you can't change that. God made you that way. And some of you are born, now some of you are born performers. You popped out of your mama's womb and you had, like, had a microphone in your hand. You're like, hey, everybody, you know, hey, don't, don't stop me, a little respect. Yeah, you, you know, you're creative, you know, that's the, that's the way you are. You're relational, you like, you're energized by crowds. You know what, nothing's going to change that. And some of you are born leaders, you know. You, you, you popped out and you were like, hey, everyone, go now, follow me to the incubator. You know, you, you've, had, you've had that orientation since you were a kid. And it's very reliable. You, you take a group of kids and you watch. One of them naturally assumes leadership, you know. I, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Some, some are natural-born rule makers, and they govern others well, and they make the rules. Now, other kids, other kids they could care less. They're like, you know, groups, whatever. They're more independent. They're like, hey, who made you boss? It, it, some of you have very independent children. <laughs> you know, yeah, my little Sasquatch, Dell, right? We bring that kid to the table for dinner every night, and it's a war to get him just to stay in his seat. It's like, down up, down up, down up. You know that game, Whack-A-Mole? 
You know, when we finally get that kid seated, sometimes we, sit, we have to strap him into a booster seat. He gives us this look, like he can't even get the, the words out, but he gives us this look that's like, you know, Daddy, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I just want you to know, I am standing up on the inside. You know? <laughs> Three years old, and he's already exhibiting, you know, leadership qualities. You know? That, that's actually what we're telling ourselves and how we spin it to make ourselves feel better. Um, <clears throat> point we all have different personalities and styles and ways of relating and that's fine god made you that way and what paul's getting at he's like make a careful exploration of who you are is a big part of finding a job that fits the other thing you need to consider when you look at your past is really what subjects interest you the most i mean go go way back in your memory and think about the time when you were in school and think about you know what what you enjoyed you, you need to give some thought what's what's kind of behind that um, some of you like to work with numbers, for instance. Who, who are you? Who like, here likes to work with numbers? Yeah, uh, dude, I don't understand you at all. <laughs> um, accounting, finances, math. That's why I was like an English major, like get away from the numbers. <laughs> you know, my older brother and I are complete opposites. He is an investment banker out in San Francisco. He, he actually runs his own hedge fund. Uh, and for the first like three years he ran that hedge fund, I thought it had something to do with shrubbery. <laughs> you know, I, I like words. You know, it's about communication for me. You're shocked by that, right? Some of you like to work with money. How many of you like to work with money? How many of you like to spend money, right? We like to go to Short Hills Mall. Um, th that's great because we are different and God made you that way. Money, money, money bores me. I am simply not motivated by it. I'm not interested in it. And this is great for me, but a huge source of frustration for my wife. <laughs> She's a business major and that's one of the reasons she actually does the bills and the checks in our home. And it's also the reason, by the way, just a little aside, why the finances of our church are in good hands because I don't touch them. <laughs> You know, that's why we brought Pastor Dave on. He's our executive pastor. He's actually a certified public accountant. The guy like loves to count beans and crunch numbers. And you know what? I'm like, I, you know, I go walk over to his office and I'm like, hey, good job, Dave. Dude, I don't relate to that at all, but man, do I appreciate that. <laughs> that's one of my main goals nowadays as our church grows. Get people on our staff who like to do the things that I actually either hate doing or just not actually really good at. And this goes both ways. How many of you, are, this is kind of interesting, so far I'm, I'm zero for two services. How many of you would like to actually, your dream would be to prepare a 20-page sermon every week for the rest of your life and then stand up and say it three times on, on Sunday? Yeah. Nobody wants a job. <laughs> nobody wants a job. That's over three. That's amazing. 800 people, no one wants a job. <laughs> it's funny, but I, I don't mind. I come home on Sunday nights and I'm like flying. What? We're made different. And I knew that from early on. I remember the second job I ever had actually was in college. Uh, when I came home for summer break, I would go work for the town grounds crew, which was basically the janitorial staff of our school system. And we were responsible for mowing all of the, uh, all the ball fields, like the football fields, the parks, everything. And, and it wasn't just like those little hand mowers. We'd get these gravelies. You ever see these things? They got like a big 10-foot, you know, bed of blades about 10 feet wide, and you'd ride in a cushion seat like a tractor. And, and basically, this was like a dream job because you, you'd have to get up early in the morning, but you drive out to a baseball diamond, you'd, you'd start in left field, you'd take your shirt off, lower the blades, and then turn right and just sit there, going in circles around that outfield again and again and again and again until break time, 20 minutes later. And I did hundreds, hundreds of circles in my early 20s, you know, which is probably also like a metaphor in some emotional, spiritual sense, but whatever, it was great. <laughs> Me and my buddy Joe, shirts off, soaking the sun, just doing our donuts, you know. But you know what? All the janitors came to think I was totally crazy because they would spend, most of the guys, you know, they're like five or six of us, but most guys would spend the time actually put on headphones, listening to music while, you know, driving the tractors. My friend Joe would actually put his headset on and actually fall asleep sometimes, you know, like go off into the... Well, you know what I did? You're going to think like I'm crazy again. I, you know I'm over church guy. I, too much church. 
hated church. Um, I, I, would, I hated church so much that on Monday mornings I would get on the tractor and spend that time in the outfield thinking about the Sunday message and how bad it was and how it should be totally go this way. Well, no, he should have looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and he should have told the story about no, 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 no. <laughs> And the greatest thing is I would literally, hours after hours, in the left field you know, of LRP school, I would be rewriting the sermon. And then it got weird because then I would start preaching it out loud. <laughs> That's literally where I got my start. I would drive around the outfield grass. The tractors were loud because you couldn't hear above the roar. And I'd actually start doing it. And the, and the crazy part was the janitors who we worked with thought I was nuts because they were supervisors. So they'd pull up in their pickup and watch... You know, us mowing these fields, they're supposed to be like supervising us. And they'd drive up to our job site and they'd see like this college kid with his shirt off doing donuts in the outfield, making these wild hand gestures like, (laughs) and it was crazy, but that's how God made me. That's part of my story. One of my earliest memories of my God given shape coming out. Folks, you need to evaluate your past work. Why? Because unconsciously, regardless of the job you have, you will naturally distort your job to include what you like to do. Somehow, some way, you'll figure out how to put that subject into your job, that basic thrust that makes you come alive. There's another, that's another way of talking about it. What makes you come alive? There's a great quote by theologian Howard Thurman that I think applies to finding a job that's fulfilling. When you're looking for a job, Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that. Because what the world needs most is people who have come alive. We printed that in your notes and I taped that to my computer screen when I was first deciding what to invest my life in. You know you found your calling when your deepest joy meets the world's greatest needs. Carefully explore it, Paul says, who you are and the work you've been given to do and sink yourself into that. And on that note, you need to evaluate not just your past work, but your current abilities as well. Um, Romans 12.3, we also have kind of down there. This is the Phillips translation. I like how, how, how they render this. Uh, it says, try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of your faith God has given you. <laughs> Can you accurately gauge your abilities? Don't overestimate, don't underestimate. Have a sane estimate of your capabilities. If you skip down a few verses to Romans 12.6, it says, God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. In other words, everyone in this room can do something better than someone else. We all got different abilities or gifts. And he's like, you need to evaluate it. Nothing is more frustrating than having a job which either A, you're not gifted for, (laughs) or B, ignores the gifts that you do have. Why? Well, if you're you're in a job you're not gifted for, you're going to wind up like stressed or panicked because you're like, I'm over my head. Or B, if your job's okay, but it like totally ignores the spiritual gifts and talents that God placed deep inside you, you will eventually come to resent it. I guarantee it. You will. I think that's one of the primary reasons why people get into what we refer to as a midlife crisis, right? One of the causes is that like one day you wake up to the fact that you've invested your life in a number of years in a job that has not really used your basic God-given abilities and you wake up and you're like, I, I think I'm, I'm wasting my life. Work becomes a joy when you're gifted at it. I mean, I mean, again, personal experience, being your pastor, like exploring God's word every week and like helping apply it to every day, that is a joy for me. <laughs> I didn't, say, I didn't say it's not hard work. <laughs> I've never worked this hard in my life. And there are good days and there are frustrating days. But overall, it is a joy for me, much more so than a drain. And that's a good indicator. It's funny, I was talking with uh, Mike Leahy about this this week. Mike's a great example of someone doing what they were meant to do. I mean, uh, Mike is one of the most relational, um, people-loving, six-foot-four giants I've ever met. 
That's why he's brilliant at what he does, right? Which is provide key leadership of all of our strategic service teams. It's like, I'm like, how do you, how do you coordinate, inspire, and love on over, you know, 500, you know, people a month of volunteers and actually inspire them to serve like on their day off and they love it? I don't know, but Mike does. <laughs> it's instinctive and he loves to do it himself. And we all benefit because of it. Me, on Fridays, Mike like walks in my office and he's like, you know, he sees me working on like the 10th draft of a sermon. And he's like, okay, good, good luck there, uh, alien boy. Whatever. I, don't, I got out of college, so I don't have to write. But that's all right. We both love what we do and we play to our strengths. Nobody's good at everything. You know, again, I'm, just, I'm using Liquid just as that's my context as an example of an organization. Liquid runs so much more smoothly now than it used to. Because we now have a staff who do the things I'm not good at or gifted for. When we first started like six years ago, I pretty much did everything, jack of all trades. But I'm not good at everything. So there are a lot of areas that we were real weak in in our ministry. But the kind of the cool thing is that now as our church family grows, I'm able to do the things like I'm, I'm decent at and allow others to shine the areas they're gifted for. Counseling is an example of that. <laughs> I really don't think I'm a very good counselor. And you don't need to say amen to that like the 1030 service did. You know, people are like, thank you for admitting that, Tim. You know, you know I, I don't naturally have a ton of patience with people, okay? Don't, don't hear me wrong. That, that's an area I'm like, you know, God, you, you're growing me in. But I'm not great. Pe- you know, people are like, you know, can I come see you? And I'm like, absolutely. Hey, oh, you know, come on in. So, you know, tell me, tell me about your problem. Describe your problem to me. You know, 50 words or less. You know? <laughs> you know? Not the greatest technique for people who are hurting. <laughs> I would have difficulty with 10 weeks of, you know, therapy or analyzation. I'm not that kind of person, but guess what? Pastor Glenn is. That's why he is a licensed professional counselor. And for 17 years, he has logged thousands and thousands of hours listening to people's problems, helping guide them through crisis, holding them when it hurts. And you know what? He's brilliant at it. We kind of have a running joke around the office that Glenn is never happier than when someone leaves his office crying. You know? When they're in tears, I'm like, oh, it's Glenn's like, yes, you know, that, that kind of thing drains me, intimidates me in some ways, but it's what Glenn was made to do. And so as our counseling ministry at Liquid grows, he's bringing on a couple of other gifted counselors who come alive in the same way. And guess what? Two things. I can't tell you how much more relaxed I am than a few years ago when I tried to, you know, inadequately solve people's problems. And two, I can't tell you how much healthier many of you, of you are. That's why I don't do much counseling anymore, because we want you to get well, not worse. All right. The Bible says, first evaluate your work, what you've done, what you've enjoyed, then evaluate your abilities. And when your gifts match your job, then your career becomes a natural expression of who you are. And all of a sudden you're like, it fits. That's my niche. That's what God made me to be. You know, parents, this is one of the most important things that you can do for your children. (laughs) Just like help them identify their basic motivational thrust, their natural passions and and their God-given abilities. Don't try to make them good at the things that you're good at. If you're good at sports and they're not, who cares? Figure out what glory God has bestowed on them and then fan that flame. They're going to find more fulfillment in life and it'll actually be easier on you. Find your fit. That's the second key to finding fulfillment at your work. Now, lastly, I want to encourage you to do something that's a bit countercultural. I mean, we all know our culture defines success at work in terms of numbers. We haven't even talked about this, but, you know, paychecks, right? Widgets or who's he, what's it sold? <laughs> Zeros at the end of your salary. But if you're really serious about finding fulfillment in your job, you need to target significance, not just success. And this is a challenge because, let's face it, when we make it just about what we earn, most of our nine-to-five work doesn't feel all that significant. I'm going to give you a piece of paper. I want you to write down how much you want 
and I want you to slide it back across the desk to me. Why can't I just tell you? Because that is the way these things are done in films. I'll slide, slide, yes. Oh, come on, be serious. I am serious, Mike. That's a 10% raise. That's I, what I want. I can't give you that. I, I don't make this much. Come on, be for real, Mike. I don't. I'll prove it to you. There is pay stub. <laughs> Are you serious? You're earning this? Plus perks, yes. Mike, this is barely more than I make. You've been here 10 years, don't? <laughs> 14 years. Oh. No, please, please. Oh, I'm sorry, me. Mike. Some more folks got to hear about this one. Ah. <laughs> okay, let's take 15 again. A boss's salary isn't just about money. It is about perks. It, for example, every year I get a $100 gas card. Can't put a price tag on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know people who laugh when they watch The Office and people who cry. Because they're like, dude, that's me. And they don't pay me enough to do this every day. I want to suggest to you that if all you're targeting in your work is success, from, from a worldly perspective, dollars in the bank, you know, corner office, everyday new adventure, you're going to be disappointed because you know what? There are no perfect jobs. They don't exist. And that's why rather than pursuing worldly success, you need to make eternal significance a priority instead. You have to approach things as God would, as Jesus actually did. Every day as you go in, you've got to have the mindset that, you know what, first and foremost today, I am working for the Lord. Now, now, I know Jesus doesn't sign your paycheck. <laughs> it's a cliche, but Colossians 3.23 says this. Whatever you do, I don't care what you do, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Circle that last phrase. as working for the Lord, not for men. He, he's saying that no matter where you work or what you do, you can actually do it for God. Unfortunately, there's this myth out there that says, well, well I can only do work for God at church. I mean, well, I mean, like Tim, you work for the Lord. Not me, I, I work for the man. <laughs> Not so much according to scripture. In other words, it doesn't matter what the context is. Every follower of Jesus Christ is working for the Lord. You can mow lawns for God. You can flip burgers for Christ. It may not be glamorous. It may not be where you want to end up. But whatever you do, says Paul, don't do it as like you're, you're doing it for your human boss or whoever pays you. Do it as if you're serving God directly. The fact is that your primary job as a Christian is serving God. And that makes every job you hold at every stage of life meaningful. I told you about my first job at Food Town, you know, scraping the gum on Sundays. I didn't tell you that I did toilets as well on Saturdays. <laughs> Not exactly the most pleasant, fulfilling, gratifying experience. But when I read this verse, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. I said, you know what? All right, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to clean John's for Jesus. <laughs> and I'm going to give him my best shot because I want him immaculate because I'm going to do it like if God himself is going to use him. So, the, so no matter what you do, you work for the Lord. Scripture tells us that we actually worship while we work. You don't work for your boss, you, you work for God at the same time. And you know what? That's a witness to non-believers. I remember my boss Kenny um, said to me the week that I was leaving, I remember because I was scraping the gum on the floor and I saw these like two boots come up and they're like fish guts all over them. He's like, man, he goes, you work hard. And I'm like, thanks. You know? And he's like, actually, we've never had someone here at Food Town work that hard. What makes you work so hard? In other words, oftentimes our efforts unto Christ elicit questions from people who are watching us as we work. 
And it opens an opportunity to share the motivation that we have. That's why one of our core values, for instance, at Liquid is God is honored in excellence. We're like, we're not going to do something unless it can be done with excellence. Why? We value excellence in all we do. And here's why we wrote. Because we believe it reflects God's character. And it actually inspires people. It causes them to ask questions. They say, what's behind that? What drives you? Actually, more than a paycheck. Secondly, you not only work for the Lord, you work like the Lord. In other words, when you walk into your office or classroom or your kitchen tomorrow morning, Monday, you are to put on the same attitude or same spirit that Jesus had. And what was his attitude towards his calling? In Mark 10, 45, he summed it up this way. Jesus said, the son of man, me, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus focused on the needs of others. He didn't lead with the question, hey, what can I get out of the job? Rather, he led with the question, what can I give to others? That's the definition of a servant attitude. A servant attitude is becoming excited about making those around you successful. And that includes your boss and your nasty coworker you wish would leave. You want to blow your, your, your boss or your coworker's mind. I dare you to go in tomorrow morning. You go in, you walk in the classroom, the office, up to, up, to your, up to them, and you say, you know what? I am here today to make you successful. I'm serious. I am committed to your success. What would you like me to do today to make you successful? And then you smile. Not like Andy Bernard or Eddie Haskell, but with sincerity of heart. <laughs> you know what would happen? No. <laughs> Actually, most bosses would be like, well, for starters, uh, why don't you go down and see the substance abuse coordinator? Because uh, clearly you've been smoking pot. Uh, you know, our world is unfamiliar with a servant spirit most of the time. But the Bible says that fulfillment comes as you actually give your life away. Jesus is like, to find life, you have to be willing to lose it first. You work for the Lord, you work like the Lord, and if you do those two things, you can actually expect the last thing, which is expect your reward from the Lord. We read the first half of Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know, this is verse 24. Why? You will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. If you're investing yourself on behalf of Jesus and working to serve others like Jesus, God's word promises you will be rewarded by Jesus. Now, now, what kind of rewards are we talking about here? Two kinds, really. Earthly and heavenly. I mean, take on a real fundamental level. Anytime we're able to use our God-given abilities to earn a living, we receive like compensation or a prosperous, that's a reward or a gift from God. That's one of the reasons we encourage folks to tithe or, or give offerings. They give a percentage of their income here at church. Not, not so much like because God needs it or the church needs it, because it's a way of actually recognizing, you know what? Everything I've been given, my job, my career, my paycheck, the fruits of my labor, they're first and foremost from him. So, so when we give back a tithe, in the Old Testament, tithe literally means a tenth. It was a symbolic way of acknowledging that, you know what? Everything I've got is from God. I'm giving it right back. And it's only by his generosity that I can earn a living. So earthly compensation is a temporal reward or gift from our generous God. It's one of the ways he provides our daily bread, right? Give us our daily bread. But more than that, I want to speak to some of you who are moving from prosperity to significant wealth. Again, with 800 whatever people going through here, I know there's a range of people on the spectrum. Some of us are like, I I am struggling to get by. (laughs) We talk about this, this area. Some of us are like, well, you know, I'm getting by. We have to stretch to make ends meet, but I'm doing okay. But there are actually others of us who have been blessed with the gift of making money. And, and you may be like, yeah, I like that gift. Uh, don't be so quick. Because the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is expected. 
And this is where most Americans fundamentally misread the purpose of money or the fruits of your labor, your paycheck. That is, I know most people are assuming like, well, dude, if I like pay my bills and I have like a little bit of extra, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be banking it away for retirement, right? Kick back the earliest possible, take it easy. But it's a misreading of what God says about the purpose of our work. Ephesians 4.28 says this, we must work doing something useful with our own hands so that, let's read it, we may have something to share with those in need. Have you ever considered that God might be making you financially successful in your current job so you could have more to give away? In other words, the list of motivations for working starts very low with necessity. I don't work, I don't eat. But then it moves up to maturity, like, well, you know what? No, I'm, I'm, I grow from my work. My character's getting developed. But one of the highest purposes of God-given work is generosity. Actually, I want to work not so, so that I can actually gain more profit in my, so I can actually help others who can't help themselves. Not just my family, but, but those whom God put in my sphere of influence in the church and beyond. <laughs> that would be my dream, to never retire, but continue to make money and continue to give more away and impact more people for the cause of Jesus Christ. Really? <laughs> Did people do that? <laughs> really? Some of you are familiar with the name Rick Warren, right? You've heard of Rick Warren? Rick, Pastor Rick, as he likes to be called. He's the author of a little book, uh, The Purpose Driven Life. <laughs> you may have heard of it. Sold about 35 million copies, <laughs> actually. That's true. 35 million copies. Um, and Publishers Weekly has now declared it the number one best-selling hardcover in American history. You heard that right. The best-selling hardcover, fiction or nonfiction, of all time. He's also a local church pastor out in California. And you've noticed I've referenced him a few times over the last couple of weeks. You know, again tonight, you're hearing some of the insights that he's outlined over the years about workplace significance. But here's the deal. I don't appreciate Rick Warren because, he, you know, he's a best-selling author. 35 million bucks. I reference him because he's a man who understands that. In the light of eternity, meaning is truly more important than money. Last week, I, uh, I got a phone call from a friend in New York City. And he was like, hey, uh, dude, come on in for dinner. I was like, yeah, I don't want to come to see you tonight. Right. He's like, no, come on, come on in. Dude, you've got to come in for dinner tonight. He goes, I'm having dinner with a friend. I was like, all right, I don't, I don't have time. What to, and he's like, dude, Rick Warren called me and wants to have dinner. Do you want to come? I was like, what? He goes, he goes, I used to work out of the mountain in California. We had like 20 people in his church. The church now is 25,000 people. And he goes, he's in town for the Tribeca Film Festival. And he has a meeting with Bill Clinton and the president of Rwanda tomorrow. He called me up tonight because he's like, I got a couple of free hours. You want to get dinner? Get some of your pastor buddies to come. You want to go? I'm like, I'll be there at 635. You know, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I had dinner last week with Rick Warren. I mean, this was, this was like kind of a, kind of a neat thing. And, um, and he was there, and you can see there, there he is. And it's a, it guy's amazing. The guy looks like he works at a deli, like slicing meat, you know? He's got, kind of got this rotund belly, and he is as salt as the earth as it gets. He comes in with sunglasses, and he's like, hey, what's going on? What's your name? He's like, that's my buddy Tim. Hey, Tim, you know? And he's like, oh, good, so you're a pastor. What's the name of church? Liquid church. He's like, okay. You know, he's like, you know. And, and, and we sat there and we sat, we had dinner with Rick Ward. It was amazing because he sits there and, 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 he, and he's like, you know, I just, I just had a couple hours and I, I said to my friend, you know, get some of your pastor buddies because I just love to encourage pastors. I'm a pastor. I want to encourage you guys and just tell you a little bit about where I've been for the past couple of years. He's like, when the purpose driven like life took, took off like a rocket, he goes, you got to understand this. He goes, I, I was just a, a pastor. He goes, you don't get into ministry, make a lot of money. He goes, 
Um, when it was on the New York Times number one bestseller list, number one for three years straight, when you sell 35 million copies, you have no idea how much money we're talking about. He goes, we were middle class people. It literally brought in tens of millions of dollars to my wife Kay and I. And when that happened, he said, my, my wife Kay and I literally, we were like, you know, what do we do with this? And a lot of our friends were like, dude, high five, it's over, you know? You can buy your own island, you know? You can, and he's like, we could have. He goes, we could have hired servants to bring us fruity drinks with little umbrellas for the rest of our life. And then he got serious and said, I just happen to think that's actually not the purpose of life. The first line of my book is, it's not about you. And so when all this money came in, we looked at each other and I was like, well, maybe it's not about us. And I got to read my own book. And we actually were like, God, why would you give us this money? And actually, if it's, if it's not about us. He goes, as we prayed and started thinking about that, he said, you know what? We we're going to make four decisions. He goes, we made four decisions. The first was, we're not going to change our lifestyle one bit. So, and I'm like, you know, think of that. If you were given like, you know, just like $50 million. He goes, we didn't go out and move into a mansion or even add on to our house. We actually live in the same house we raised our family. I drive a six-year-old Ford. <laughs> and, and we said, this windfall isn't for us to show off how wealthy we are. We're going to stay exactly as we are. We're not upscaling. We're not. And then I stopped taking a salary from the church. And then I added up all the church had paid me over 25 years and gave it all back. Because I didn't want anyone thinking I'd do what i do for money. And then the third thing is, we became reverse tithers we actually gave away 90% and now live on 10%. And he started talking about 27 years ago when he went out Saddleback with literally no money, didn't even have an apartment to live in. And he goes, we gave 10% of everything. I got 100 bucks, I gave $10. And every year I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to increase it 1% a year. So next year was 11%. He goes, and even when it's hard, it got harder and harder, 13 14%. And he goes, so we were up to tithing around 25% of our salary when the purpose-driven life hit and this phenomenon happened and literally brought in tens of millions of dollars. And that's when we said we're going to be reverse tithers. And now we give away 90% and we keep 10. And what we're going to do with that 10 is we are going to spend it on the people who have nothing for themselves. So we give it to three different charities. We set up three charities. Acts of Mercy, which serves those infected by AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa, equipping the church, which trains church leaders in developing countries, and the Global Peace Fund, which fights poverty, disease, and illiteracy among the world's poorest of the poorest. And he says, and the best part is, I don't ever have to retire now. I can work for free for other people. And we're just like, pass the salt, you know? <laughs> like, what, what, what? For some reason, and it was amazing because he, he, was, he was one of the most honest and humble men you've ever met. And he goes, for some reason, he goes, I can't explain it to you that God allowed this book to prosper. He goes, I didn't, and the Purpose Driven Life doesn't say one new thing. There's not one new insight in that book that hasn't been said before. But I think actually there is one reason that God made that book so successful and consequently me and my wife so prosperous because he knew he could trust us with the money. He knew we actually believed the opening line that he, he inspired me to write. It's not about you. I believe that. And so when the money came, I assumed, you know what? This isn't about us. It isn't for us. God's given it to us to help other people in Jesus' name. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our lives doing. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to come here tonight and encourage you guys to be generous. And we're like, okay. <laughs> you know, Just be models of extravagant giving because you know what? That's where you're going to have your reward. Not on Sundays, you know, not on the accolades. That's where you're going to lay up treasure. So if you're rich, I want to talk to those of us who are rich tonight. And some of you are like canceling yourselves out because you're like, we live in Oz. 
All right? Well, I know New Jersey can skew your perspective, but most of us are in the top 1% compared with the rest of the world. And if you are rich or wealthy or prosperous or making a living, or, or, and you actually have, I have one question to ask you. Why? Why do you think God gave you that money? For yourself? So you could retire early? Take it easy? Really? Rare is the man or woman who even considers the fact that perhaps the reason they've been entrusted with wealth is so that they can use it to help others in need. Perhaps you've been blessed with wealth, think of it this way, because God actually trusts you. He believes in you. Do you believe that? Not that you believe in God, but that God believes in you. And that he's entrusted some of his riches to you on earth because he knows you can be counted on, I can count on her, to use that money for kingdom purposes, to further his agenda in the world. You're his steward. And the question is, are you making wise investments with the master's money? Because stocks, bonds, portfolios, nest eggs, you can't take any of it with you when you die. You can store up treasures in heaven. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives financial advice. He's like, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And it's like, well, what kind of treasures are you talking about then? The kind that Rick Warren's giving his life to. Spending it on building God's church, on serving the poor, on caring for the sick, for folks who can't care for themselves. Folks, this is not about earning your way into heaven. I want to be real clear on this. Only trust in Jesus Christ alone can guarantee you a home in heaven. That's grace. That's God's gift. You can't earn your way in. Let me be clear about that. God, good deeds are not the way to be saved. But when you are given a home in heaven through trust in Jesus Christ, you can spend your life decorating it a bit, <laughs> dressing it up with the works of kindness and compassion and generosity that are done unto the least of these in this world. Because Jesus says, when you spend what I've given you on behalf of the poor in my name, it's like you've done it unto me. So what we're doing down here actually has eternal implications up there. When we get to heaven, the Bible says we will have the job performance review of a lifetime. We'll actually be accountable to God for what we did with what he gave us on this earth. And that's a challenge for some of us, you know, today. Here. To evaluate how we're investing the fruits of our work. There's, there's an old hymn, I love this classic line, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Meaning is always more important than money. Eternal significance always trumps earthly success. And what we do with the fruits of our labors is a matter of great interest to our God. Invest wisely down here and you'll have your reward up there. Well, we're out of time, and tomorrow, TikTok is Monday. <laughs> Maybe you had the wrong idea about work. Maybe you came in today thinking it's a necessary evil, or, or that God could care less about your job. You couldn't be more wrong. God cares about every job, every labor done under the sun, and he wants you to use the gifts you've been given and the work that he's put in front of you, but you have to know why you work in the first place. You've got to understand the foundational goodness of it. And you've got to have the patience to find a job that fits your God-given passions and abilities. And you've got to target significance, not just success, if you're going to find lasting commitment. What I wanted to do to close is invite all of us who are working to stand together 
and actually just kind of commit our work tomorrow, Monday morning, to God. So let's stand together if we could. Actually, everybody, everybody just stand together. And we want to commit tomorrow morning, which occurs in T-minus 12 hours, sorry, <laughs> to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us all tasks to do. Um, I want to thank you, Lord, that you didn't just put us in this world to breathe and take up space, but you gave meaningful work for all of us. Lord, would you help us realize that our work matters to you? That no job is insignificant in light of eternity. Father, help us to realize that while we're at work, you're working on us. I want to pray for each person here. Every businessman, every student, every mom, every teacher, every salesperson, every worker. Just use our jobs this week, Lord, to develop our character. We want to be more like Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant who gave his life for ours. So use our jobs to serve others in his name. And as you bless us, let us be a blessing to others. In the name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said, Amen.